This is Dustin, and you found The Kook Jester Show. Welcome to Kook Jester, everybody. My guest today is Dan John, a leading voice on all things related to strength and lifting. Having followed Dan's work for about six years myself, it was very exciting to have him on the show. Some highlights from our conversation include the importance of failing publicly, how parents should encourage their kids, and the pain-pleasure matrix of goal achievement. His latest book is Attempts, Essays on Fitness, Health, Longevity, and Easy Strength. In this book and all his works, he shares lessons from a lifetime spent under the bar as coach, teacher, and competitor. And if you read his words closely, you may even find some valuable clues about how to live a full life and be a good human too. Dan John University is his latest venture, collecting all his knowledge in one place. Here you can learn how to perform the movements properly, build effective strength programs, and track your progress. And don't worry, I'll provide links to all Dan's resources in the show notes. And if you like what we're doing at Kook Jester, please follow the show and share it with your friends. So here's Dan. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Hello, Dan. Welcome to the show. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. A little technological hiccup, but I think I fought my way through that pretty well. So yesterday I was telling my wife that, uh, just more of a reminder, oh, hey, I have a podcast interview with Dan John tomorrow. And she looks at me and she says, who's Dan John? So I was going to go through one of the prefaces in your book and basically summarize it that way and say, oh, he's a world-renowned strength coach. People all over the world ask him for advice, but I didn't. Instead, I said, do you know Phil Jackson? And she's like, yeah, I know Phil Jackson. I'm like, Dan John is like the Phil Jackson of lifting and performance coaching. She's like, oh, that's cool. Well, good. I'm cool. I'll go yeah. find a white buffalo and we can uh, get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> so that, but that being said, like, how would you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Dan. I'm not a big fan of those introductions. I think I have a very good curriculum vitae or resume, but I always joke with people, you'll figure out if I'm an idiot or not. I want to say it was George Sheehan, but he, he talked about how there's only certain kinds of people who live in the peer present. Children, and I've got uh, my grandson upstairs making some noise. The dying, artists of all kind, you know, what have you done for me lately? I'll just say this because it's a current event, but uh, if you talk about Will Smith today, you're probably not talking about the Fresh, fresh Prince, you know, uh, and nor will you probably ever again. You know, if I say certain members of the artistic community, your first response won't be for their Academy Award stuff or their great album. It's the failures. And the, the fourth one is athletes. And so I've always been lucky because, you know, Beowulf, uh, the poem Beowulf talks about the same idea. Warriors live in the pure present. To a warrior, there is no tomorrow because there probably isn't a tomorrow. And kings like Abraham Lincoln did a great job in the Gettysburg Address. They talk in the past, the present, and the future. Uh, four score and seven years ago, we find ourselves here today. Future generations won't even remember that I had this speech that you missed on that one, Abraham. So for me, when people introduce me, most of the time I just grab the mic and just say, let me talk. Let me let me get started. But I guess, you know, when you look at it, I mean, um, uh, I've traveled the world uh, as an academic and an athlete. Uh, I started lifting weights in 1965. I have, I have advanced degrees. I'm a professor in two different fields, uh, religious studies and strength and conditioning and there you go. That's enough. Part of what I found is makes your lessons so appealing is that you have the the dual approach is that you you don't seem to suffer fools, as in like 
just get on with it. But then you also seem to admit that you fall th- for things like the rest of us do, whether it's the the shiny new yeah. workout or the new supplement. It's like, oh, he's uh, just like one of us. I mean, I do. You can't help yourself. You know, uh, I just picked up, I, I loaned them out and I never got them back, but I just rebought uh, Clarence Bass's first three ripped books, Rip One, Rip Two, and Rip Three. And here's a book, Rip One, that is basically from my junior college year at Skyline College. I was the MVP. Uh, we were state champions. I was state champion. I was team captain. And that's how I remember that year. And then I'm reading that that's when he won Mr. Over 40. So he and I have had a series of email conversations in the last two weeks. Here you have a guy who's 84 years old, Clarence Bass, who's still learning. Every couple of weeks, he posts something on a site. And every couple of weeks, I'll read it and go, this is money. The thing about Clarence, though, is he picked up a vision. He has a vision about diet. He has a vision about training. So I'll break that in. He has a vision of strength training and a vision of cardiovascular work. And basically, all he has done is nuanced it since 1977, where me, you know, I was a Highland game athlete. I was an Olympic lifter. I, I power lifted in a meter or two. I still played adult football into my late 40s um, through the discus. I, you know, I did all these things. I tried all this idiocy. And I think what's interesting is that the two of us have these wonderful conversations. He's basically, if you read, well, I wouldn't say entirely, but uh, but the, the blueprint is there in Ripped 1, certainly in Ripped 2 and Ripped 3, that he still uses here when he's 84 years old, still training a couple, actually five days a week, he still trains. And then you look at my work and I try every stupid fad that comes out and I dive in head first. And yet the two of us eat breakfast together, so to speak. We dine together. It's not... Uh, we are the opposite of what you find politically in this in this generation. We find common table, common union. So for me, you're right. I'm a f- freaking idiot, and I get that. And I and I, I didn't actually my- call you a freaking idiot. By the way. Well, when I when <laughs> somebody tells me when someone tells me they went to GNC and bought some new supplement, I think they're usually pretty stupid. But my favorite Shakespeare comment, uh, you are the idol of idiot worshipers. I love that line. You know, it's just such a great line. Uh, I am the, yeah, I'm the king of idiot worshipers. But yeah, you're right. I try a lot of things. I make a lot of mistakes. And yet I still can stay close to Jim Schmitz, who basically has argued the same thing. He was my coach at Sports Palace. He said something to me in 1974 or five, and it's he still sticks by it today. My coach Dick Notmeyer, my coach Ralph Mon, these guys are all, <laughs> these guys are all just do it this way and never, you know, this is the right way, do it this way. And maybe it's the way my brain works, but you know, squirrel, what was that? You know, I uh, maybe I just have a little bit of that in me. And and when you read my work, you see that I've done a lot of dumb things, but uh, I would say throughout all of it. There's been certain things that have been, and of course, it's always the things I can't sell. You know, I've always been a big believer in sleep. I've always been a big believer in water. I've always been a big believer in protein and vegetables. Now I've added fermented vegetables. Oh my gosh, you know, how crazy am I? Uh, but I've, I've pretty much stuck throughout all these years to, to a vision of certain things. Sadly, I can't make any money on anything I actually truly believe in. So I will continue to try to sell you Super Energy 5000. And if you call today, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and without knowing you personally, and we, we touched on this just a little bit there, it's evident that you love what you do for the most part. 
and uh, lifting, sports, competitions, coaching. Is this the result of a grand master plan? Yes. In 1965, when I was seven or eight years old, my aunt died and my brothers brought home a barbell from Sears, the Ted Williams 110-pound barbell set. And I looked at the little booklet and it's, I think, oh, no, it's in the other room now. It's in the other room because I still have it. And I touched the weights and I said to myself, Danny, I said to myself, you know, 50 years from now, no, is it 60? Oh my God. (laughs) That's that's, that's 50. Oh my God. How many? Lots of 57 years from now, you'll be talking with your friend Dustin on a podcast and then the world will make sense to you. That's exactly what I said. That is, that was the plan. Really? And I never, yes. That's an amazing plan. So as soon as we hang up today, I'll, I'll probably just fold over and die. On it's like life is complete. Like let's finish. This I, off. There's nothing. <laughs> um, I would say that if there is a constant in my life, it would be, well, in fact, if you look up behind that, those are my strength and health magazines up there. For those who are just listening, I just, I showed him my magazines from my youth. This idea that, of weightlifting has been the constant uh, discus throwing is its own little voyage, which is a good story. Some of the other stuff, but really, I joke about this, and I told this story at uh, the workshop I gave in North Carolina this weekend because it's a true story and it makes me laugh. When I was 14, I wrote in my journal, the journals in my over there, that 50 years from now, which is basically now, that uh, if all I did was power clean and press and squat snatch, I would cover all the muscle groups. And I had these little X's on, on this little drawing I made of a human body. And it's funny because 50 years ago, yesterday's workout, was I did squat snatch and clean and jerk. So I did Olympic lifted yesterday, taking the advice of myself from 50 years ago. So I would say that would be the constant. Other constants would be, well, yeah, protein, veggies, water. That'd be another constant. And there's been some of this, my friend, you know, some going back and forth. But most of the time I've been, I've been on a, I've been on a nice little voyage here. You know, and I look back and it's funny, uh, I just got a nice email I've been nominated for a Hall of Fame, and that's kind of nice. And uh, I'll find out in a couple of days whether or not I'm in it. And oddly, this is going to sound so self-serving, but I deserve to be in it <laughs> <laughs> for one of the places I went to school. And, you know, my I've earned it. A couple months ago, I got a Lifetime Achievement Award in Strength and Conditioning, and I've earned it. And I, and I, and I sit back and I look at those, those kinds of things, because those are the kinds of awards you get when your time on this, let's just say this nicely, I, I have more yesterdays than tomorrow's. And I'm starting to get those awards that recognize that. And as I and I look back over this career and this this life, it's like, yeah, it's nice to get the awards and the recognition, but it's also nice to think that so many of my former athletes are professors and doctors and lawyers and, and accountants and videographers living in London and you know, people all over the world are, are my students. And my motto is three words and uh, my mission statement, I should say, make a difference. I think I've been true to that mission statement for a long time. I, I strive actively to my goal is to leave this place a little bit better than I found it. And I, I've strived to do that by trying to encourage people through my writing and coaching to keep bouncing back up to keep fighting the good fight to to be decent and kind and and strive to you know make ourselves and the world a better place and and I know that sounds like 
pure crap to some people, but that is the truth. So I have a a stupid follow-up question to this, which may be considered no stupid. Well, apparently there's joke. no stupid question, but... Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> what I used to tell young teachers, young teachers, you can always tell, they go, so we were told in college there are no stupid questions. And I, I would say something like, you haven't been teaching long enough, trust me. There are some <laughs> stupid questions. <laughs> but go ahead, Dustin. Okay, but it, it's a two-parter. Two so one is, why is, what are your goals? Such a good question. And then to follow that up is how do we tailor those goals so that we know they come from us? Like we're, we're talking in the context of athletics and competition, especially when we're young. Okay. So you got to understand, you know, I, I have a whole course on my website on goal achievement. Uh, one of the things I spend time with with every certification is goal achievement. See, and I'm, I'm not trying to correct you. Don't take that wrong. Any idiot can go set goals. You know, I want to be a unicorn. I want a pony. I want to be an astronaut. I want to play in the NBA. And I want to make the Olympic team as a swimmer. That's just a freaking Christmas list. None of that is a goal. And one of the first things I strive to do when someone I'm sitting down with somebody on goal achievement is we have this little chart we fill out. And the chart goes on the top. It's pain and pleasure. And on the left side is make the goal don't make the goal. And it's interesting because making a goal causes pain. And I want to talk about that pain before we even get started. And getting your goal should involve a lot of pleasure. Uh, famously, Mike said to me when I did this chart with me, he goes, it'd be cool. Okay, listen, let me understand this. You're about to dedicate the next five to nine years of your life on this thing, on this journey, on this adventure. And if you get this goal, it'd be cool. That's it. So the first thing before I even get started, I try to, in Midsummer's Night Dream, that great speech by Theseus, I try to give flesh to these words. You know, I try to embody these words. So here you are, you have this goal. Now what I want to do, and this is, it sounds weird to say, because I'm talking to 13 and 14 year old kids sometimes about this stuff, but I'm warning them the next eight years, it's going to be a lot of stuff. There's going to be a lot of pain in the next years, next eight years. We better make sure we think about what the pleasure is from doing it. The One of the boxes is what pleasure will you get from not getting your goal? And I talk to them and, and they say, why are we talking about this? Well, most people, 19 out of 20 people don't get their goals. Yeah. That's my personal research. They don't get their goals. Why do 19 out of 20 people not get their goals? Because there's more pleasure in not getting the goal. Okay. Can you explain um, that a little bit? How many times did I go on dates in high school and junior college? Zero. How many times did I drink in high school and junior college? Alcohol. I'm going with zero. 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 How many parties did I miss in high school, junior college, and college? I was, went to Utah State. We're in the bus one day, and one of the guys announces that Playboy Magazine had said that Utah State was a top 10 party school. And we're on a bus to like Montana or something like that. And and I remember Tarleton and I talking. We talked for a couple hours. He was my buddy from, he's a Norwegian steeplechaser. And the two of us kind of had that look. You know, you kind of talk like this. Two guys are, okay, you know, we both kind of lean in and your right ear would be your, near my left ear. And you kind of have that conversation. You're like, you know, we miss a lot, don't we? Yeah. I, did you know we're a party school? No. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll go out on, sometimes I'll go out, you know, 
me and my roommates will have a couple beers on a Tuesday night, but we don't go anywhere or anything. Yeah. I go to the movie on Thursday nights because it's only a dollar. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Thursday night, dollar night. Dude, that's a lot of sacrifices. To achieve the goals I've achieved, I've given up a lot. Here's the funny thing. Where I'm at in my life right now, if I want to go get a beer right now, I go get a beer. If I want to have a party, I'll make five phone calls, okay? I didn't miss anything. But at the time, you feel like you're missing everything. So as you begin to go into the goal achievement idea, I want it on the table. I want the athlete, like, for example, when you're a division one athlete, you get to wear, you know, you get your letter, you get you wear your letterman's jacket, you're in your school colors, they give you this equipment. My picture was in the school paper every week on the back and it was nice and, you know, and I always had the face like, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. That's pretty cool. So when I'm selling this to you and I'm saying, listen, you know, I would be in class, I would come in on Monday, uh, the school paper, I think it came out on Monday. And my professors would say, Mr. John, most of my professors called me Mr. John, and I don't know why. I think it's because my first name's Dan, and it threw them off. And they would talk about my, and my other students would be like, which one's the discus? Yeah, it's the flat one that is aerodynamic, like a Frisbee. Yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, except it'll kill you versus a Frisbee. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. And that kind of thing can sustain you from missing a party at a fraternity house on a Friday night. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to tell me you want to lose, you know, if I'm working with a client that uh, she, he or she throw, shows up at 350 pounds and, and they want to get down to 220 pounds, you know, a, a third of their body weight off, there has to be an important conversation about what pleasure will you get in not doing the, I mean, there's going to be medical and th- at that level, there's going to be medical intervention at some kind. At that level, there's going to be probably prescription medicine involved. At that level, there's going to be painful human movements, like something as simple as walking down the street. It, it can't be anyway. There is going to be some embarrassment. So I wouldn't say shaming, but you know, you're going to have to put yourself out there. But what is the value of it? Tell me about the gold that you see at the end of this journey. When you talk to me about Dan, like right now I'm in the middle of a real major body weight drop, okay? I'm trying to get down to the 96 kilo class. That's not to lift weights. I'm trying to get down to the 96 kilo class because I want to be around for my grandchildren. I have three right now, Danny, Josephine, and uh, Leo upstairs. And I want to be around. I want to dance at Josephine's wedding. I, I, no one in my family lives very long. We either die in Americans war, America's wars or we die young of cancer. I'm older than my parents were when they died. My brother died a couple of years ago. Tragic accident. Tragic death. Not accident. A death. And I'm worried that, you know, in fact, Dustin, it's a rare day. I don't think that I'm going to get a phone call about one of my brothers. Okay. Or now my sister's not doing very well. This is real to me. So for me, getting down to 96 kilos isn't just, I'll break the American record in the snatch and clean and jerk in total, which I hope I do. But it's also... I'm putting my best foot out there to be at Josephine's wedding, to watch Leo play high school sports, to see Danny, you know, that Danny has a very clever mind. And I'm really fascinated to see where that takes him. To me, when I start talking about dancing at Josephine's wedding, it's a powerful enough thought that my voice cracks when I talk about it. When I gather, when I mention it, I'll probably go for a walk or a sauna after we talk because I, that rebooted our conversation here, just rebooted how important that goal is to me. That's a goal. That, my friend, is a goal. It's not a wish. 
It's not a wish. It's not just thing. It's not just, yeah, I wish I was an Olympian and I wish I played in the National Football League. I go to bed early every night because I know with the way my body works that that extra hour of sleep, and then I get up in the morning to smell of coffee. My coffee maker is my alarm. And when I do this meditation and I do the sauna and I, and I drink, I'm drinking some kind of weird tea right now. When I drink hot beverages versus hot whiskeys, I'm setting myself up to achieve the goal of being around for my kids, uh, grandkids, life-changing events. So it's more than just a wish list. You got to go to the next level and it's got a thud on your chest when you think about it. Okay. That's a lot. Which is also why 19 out of 20 people don't get their goals. And it's not because they're lazy. It's because they didn't stop and use this magnificent thing we call the human brain to write it out, think it out, kind of pre-see the problems. When bad things happen to me as an athlete, and they will, when bad things happen to me as a student, and they do, when life kicks you in the face, you're like, no problem. This was expected. Let's change the plan just a a few. Let's just move the plan a little bit over. Like, would you say like of the 19 to 20 people that that don't make those goals, Mm -hmm. is it a lack of being able to imagine the long-term pain? That's my dog barking. Uh, Okay, I got one of those too. I'm surprised he hasn't chatted and joined this conversation yet. So I'm a big fan of Earl Nightingale. And Earl Nightingale always talked about the top 5%. You want to be in the top 5% in anything you strive to do. If you sell 10,000 copies of a book, you're in the top 10% of authors, a 5% of authors of all time. If you sell 20,000, you're in the top 3% of authors of all time. And what happens is, I'll, you know, when people find out I write books for a living, it's always a little weird because I don't look like a writer. You know what I mean? I don't, I'm sitting next to a famous actress in first class and we were chatting just for a minute. She goes, what do you do? And I go, I, I, I write books. It was weird enough that this famous actress was sitting to my right, but the look she gave me went up to anybody else. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. It was the truth. I hope she didn't think I was trying to impress her. It's hard to write a book. It's a lot of work. A lot of work over a lot of time. Uh, it's a lot of work to lift certain amounts of weight. And, you know, if you miss, you break things. I would argue that Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, they had this six-word quote. You become what you think about. And what I think hurts most people, uh, the 19 out of 20 now. And again, folks, I'm not being ist of any kind. I'm not blaming anybody for failure. I'm just saying you become what you think about. So if you spend hours looking at social media, you become someone who looks at a lot of social media. And by the way, there's no condemnation in anything I'm about to say. I said this in a, in a podcast and I said, you know, if you watch porn all day, and I, I'm not judging if you, if you do, I don't do what you do, but that's what you're thinking about. That's what you're watching. If you tell me you want to write books, but you spend all your time scrolling through social media, or if you want to be a great cook, a chef. But every day's Uber Eats kind of thing. Yeah. You don't chop vegetables. You're not going to make it. You, you got to chop vegetables. I've never thought of this before, but chopping vegetables is what success is all about. You chop vegetables, you know, you do the fundamentals, you do the basics. And when you're chopping vegetables, if someone tells you a better way to do it, you do it that way for a while. And if they're right, you even get faster and faster. I'm strong because I lift weights and I lost a lot of body fat in the last year because I 
I fast, lift weights, and go for a walk every single day. I sleep. And nothing I'm saying is radical or crazy, but it's the way things go. Using these four levels, so crappy, good, or crappy sucks. Oh, uh, good, good and great. Dave Tate. Okay. That's yeah. Dave's. So, like using that, why is it important to compete and compare ourselves to others, even though we live in a world where you're not supposed to compare yourself to anybody else and stay in your lane and all that stuff? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't have to. I mean, you certainly don't have, you don't have to do anything. There's a lot of safety. There's a lot of certainty, if you will, about not doing this kind of stuff. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I went down to Arizona and, you know, strapped on my singlet, put on my lifting boots and stepped on the platform. I mean, I didn't have the best day of my life. And that's coming up in a, I don't know when this next meet is, but that's going to be the best day of my life. If you want to extend yourself beyond the norm, you have to walk into uncertainty a little bit. The reason I picked Utah State over Stanford for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I didn't want to go to Stanford is I didn't want to drive home every weekend and hang around with my friends. I, I didn't want mom to do my laundry. I wanted the uncertainty. When I came to Utah in 1977, I only knew one person, and that was Coach Mon, and all I knew was voice. And here it is, 2022, and I still live in Utah. The uncertainty, that ground change of, I better learn how to make friends because I ain't got none. I better learn how to do this and this and this because everything's new. And I got to tell you, uncertainty is something that changes lives. I mean, uncertainty is a great engine to learn things. And the thing about what competition does for you is when they say your name, you know, Dan, John, up, everyone in the audience looks over at the platform. There's a weight on the platform. I walk up to it and I whip it over my head. And if it stays up there, the judges who I don't know, give me three white lights. And if I don't do that, they give me three red lights. And that uncertainty drives you to try to become more certain about life. I, I've always liked the challenge. And that, so that makes me a little unique. And I know that. And I have to be a little careful. I like being put on the spot. I like being nervous. I like, I like going, oh, here we go. And then over the years, like I know you've coached kids at all levels. Yeah. But how do you manage those difficult conversations where a kid shows up, great work ethic, awesome to coach, but just doesn't have it? Yeah, the genetics and, and geography issue. Well, that's my job as a coach is to make sure that, and don't forget the bulk, 99% of the athletes I ever coached didn't go to the next, didn't make, well, let's just say didn't move two levels beyond me, okay? Lots of them competed at like the lower Division Three NAIA levels, junior college levels. Uh, many were Division One, absolutely um, professional athletes. I've had a few, you know, make it make it to like an NFL camp. But the bulk of them, I knew from the beginning, they'd make a much better accountant than they were an outside linebacker. I've always been lucky because my own experience to intertwine academics and athletics. I've always tried to get them to think of lifetime health and fitness. Lifetime, you know, don't don't write checks at 15. You can't cash, cash at 55. So that that's always been my view. I've been very lucky. My, let's see, my lawyer is a former student. My doctor is a former student. My mortician is a former student. Uh, I figure those three will argue over the body there at the end, you know. Um, but when I'm hanging out, well, when I go to my uh, my doctor and we catch up for a few minutes, as you do, and it's kind of cool to have a doctor that's 
you know, he's losing his hair now and he's, he's in his mid to late fifties. And he was my student and he understands the complexities of being a middle-aged male and aging. It's kind of nice to have those conversations. And yet I remember like it was yesterday sitting in my classroom studying for a test. So that I want my athletes to be good parents, uh, good, good neighbors, members of society, basically healthy. It would be nice if they were kind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So all the important stuff outside of sport. Now, why sport's so good is because it's such a great teaching thing. I was with an athlete today. He's a friend, a friend of mine's child. And uh, we took him to our track practice. I teach at a college, a university. Brought him out and we were talking about this game he played in, an American football game. And, you know, it was such a public failure by this team. This team was very good and they played horribly in the state championship game. And uh, it was fascinating because what I was trying to do with him is get the life lessons. You know, I kept bringing it up. You guys failed badly. I mean, they, the turnover, the stupid plays, the, they fell apart as a team. Well, I want you to see that. I want you to be 16 years old and fail publicly with your mom and dad and grandparents, with all the coaching staff, with a team behind you with a school behind the team, with a community behind the school, behind the team. Fail then when you have all those safety nets, all those parachutes around you. There, you need to practice failure. I've thrown discus, discuses out of bounds at huge meets, publicly failing. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But I had my mom and dad there, came home to dinner with my brothers. My sister was there. My friends came over. I kind of went, oh, woe is me. Went off to another, you know, graduated from high school, went to junior college and started again and never did that mistake again. I had to find new mistakes. And then when you fail in junior college, you don't have as many people around you. When you fail at university, you have Coach Mon, you have Tarled, you have your teammates, maybe a girlfriend and your, your friends. When you fail as an open athlete, maybe you have a spouse, maybe you have a you maybe have some friends. So the toolkit is already there. You failed publicly. That's why I think it's so... Now, I'm not pushing sports, and a gentle listener, hear me on this. My good friend Tim Carr told me the first day before I taught. So we're looking at about basically uh, August 28th, about 1981, okay? Uh, this is when I first taught high school. I taught college before that. And he said, high school, there should be three pillars when they graduate. Academics, activities, and social. He said the kids who fail in college from this school are the ones who only had one leg on that stool, three-legged stool. So a lot of kids go through, they have 4.0s, but they have no social life. So they go off to college, they get drunk, they do absolutely idiotic things and wash out in the fall of their freshman year, even though they got the president's scholarship to this fancy Big Ten school. Activities. The, my most successful students aren't the athletes. It's the kids that were on the tech crew of the uh, the school play. Those are the kids who learned how to use drills and hammers and put up the black stuff to hide the, this. And they learned all those skill sets and they learned how to use microphones and they learned how to deal with the talent. Those kids always end up just fine. And they also have a lot more fun than the rest of us. But whatever it is, it's, I think it's very important that one of the things you should demand of your child in high school is that they speak in front of their 
of their peers, whether it's a speech or a statement or a song, I don't care, but to stand up publicly and speak to your peers. Because that's a skill set that's far more important than, I don't know, being homecoming king or something. Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's not necessarily sports that I'm talking about, but it is that weird combination of life skills that sports amplifies, but there's other routes mm-hmm. to that amplification too. And then as there's a lot of parents on the sidelines and they're watching us grow up. And from your point of view, what's a good level of push from parents when it comes to encouragement or you got to do all this to reach the next level kind of thing? Yeah. Most of your parents will hate the statement, but here we go. My sophomore year at Skyline College. So let's review this. So this is my second year there. Okay. I was going to be state champion, captain of the state championship team, most valuable player of this team. Okay. I was also going to receive the Academic Athlete Award called the Phil Garlington Award, which I'm very proud of. You got all that. You got all that. So successful athlete on the program. Does that make sense? Second year. Okay, got that. One day, Coach Lahati at the team room goes, Danny John. I'm like, oh, God, what do I do this time? Because he always would bark at us. And I go, usually when coaches are recruiting my athletes, they talk to me first. And I'm like, yeah, okay. He goes, well, this guy who's recruiting you, this coach is recruiting you. You should talk to me first. I go, coach, there's, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm just getting phone calls and letters. He's at every track meet. I go, what does he look like? He goes, well, he's a lot smaller than you, and he always wears a suit. Coach, that's my dad. And Coach Lahati did this. He went like this. Oh, my God. So at the next track meet, he didn't walk to the stands. He sprinted, sat down next to Al and Eileen John, my mother and father, for probably half an hour, introduced himself, apologized to them for not have done introducing him first. Mom and dad were both sitting there. Yes, thank you, coach. You know, thank you very much. I guess coach said nice things about me, which is, still amazes me because he never said them to me. And at the end of the year at our big banquet, when I got all these awards because I'm so wonderful, he gave my parents the Outstanding Fan Award. That's how parents should be. You should show up to every track meet, every football game, every dance recital, every rehearsal. You should be present, but that's all you should do. I wrote a couple years ago, thinking about my dad. It must have been like his 25th or 30th anniversary of his death. I, I, I had this story I wrote. I wrote about how I would go up to the high school. We, we lived right next to a high school, and, I, and I'd go throw the discus. And sometimes dad would show up, and he would stand out in the field and mark my throws. And sometimes he would pick up the discus and throw it back. And the joke was I would throw once he'd throw 30 times. You know? And I just talked about, you know, my dad had his faults, you know, as a world war two guy got pretty beat up in the war. He had his issues, but to me, that was the best image of parenthood I'll ever see in my life. Cause he was there. He was present. If I was having a technical issue, I would say, dad, I'm, I'm not doing this right. And he would patiently do his best to help me any way he could. There was no push. There was no prime. They just supported me. And that's all you need to do. That's that's all you appropriately should do. My parents would never, ever, ever talk to a coach. It just wasn't done. My mom would go to parent-teacher conferences, and that's still a great story. Miss Heim, my uh, English teacher, uh, we came in the next day and said, uh, Danny? I go, yeah. She goes, uh, I met your mom last night. And she took me aside. She said, she's the only mom of a senior who showed up. And I thought, okay. And Miss Heim said, she's very kind and she's very proud of you. And I went, my mom's proud of me. 
She doesn't. She sure doesn't show it. <laughs> Old Irish lady. So yeah. So that there's my advice for parents: show up, be present, do what you're supposed to do, and don't do what you're not supposed to do. Stay in, stay in your lane, bro. Now, I do have to ask you some questions about training or basic sure. things. Okay. I know you could spend days on the front squat, but I have a picture of my daughter when she's two and she's just squatting down to look at a bug and her form yeah. is naturally perfect. Yes. So, and there's good reasons for it. So why do we lose the ability to do such a basic movement so easily? First off, that I, I hear this constantly about babies have perfect squats and we screw them up. Uh, babies' heads are abnormally large per body scale. So one of the, if you had a much bigger head and, well, let's do it this way, or much, much shorter legs, arms, and torso, your squat would instantly improve. So that's first. So let's just do that. First off, So we got to double the size of our heads to get a better squat. Is that what you're saying? Yes. It, yes. Oh. Uh, triple, triple, basically. Triple. Yeah. It's the noggin on Leo. The next thing is, if you, if you listen to Tim Anderson, Tim will tell you, it's, it's because they're still crawling and they're still doing what he calls original strength. And I think so much of it is the fact that they spend time on the ground and then they get up and they get back down or sneaking up on, you know, an hour here. I've been sitting the entire time. Whereas Leo, I can tell by hearing, has been moving around, complaining about things, crawling, pounding into things. So I would say if you want to improve your squat, get down on the ground, start crawling around, watch TV on the floor, roll around on the floor, get up on the floor, 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 floor. When you're out playing and you should play, you know, six to eight hours a day, make sure you're squatting and looking at bugs. And then I know a piece of advice, which seems to flow through your, your works is that the body is one piece. What's this actually mean? This was a game changer once I figured this out. Sure. It comes from John Jerome's book, Staying Supple. I call it the Lees, emotionally, spiritually, physically, chemically, if your child is in intensive care, probably not a good day to do a snatch workout. If you got diarrhea, I'm not spotting you in the back squat, okay? If you haven't slept for five days and you're supposed to perform in a football game, I'm probably not going to put you at quarterback, kicker, or even on the field. You need to take a nap, okay? The lees. So, now, we break it out into my field. I call it Frankenstein's monster training, arm day, leg day, and all that nonsense. Hey, your body is one piece. If you're bench pressing and I stick a fork in your calf, it's going to hurt your bench press. So the body is one piece. The body is one piece. And it is. The older I get, the more and more I realize that I have huge... There are times I'll look at a picture of myself and I'll go, what the hell? Who's that old guy? But then I'll notice that if I do a few things... If I take care of a few areas in my life, if my financial area is going up and my physical is going up, oddly, it tends to drag up my social a little bit and a few other things. Mm -hmm. If my social life goes up too high, I pay with my recovery life. You follow? Yeah. 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 Because the body and, and, and all these factors dance together. But that dance is who's sitting in your chair right now, Dustin, is that's, that's who you are. I read a really interesting thing from Brad Pillen the other day is that your body fat is what your brain and body have agreed it should be. And I thought to myself, I've never heard a better way to explain the body's one piece. If you're 45% body fat, 
That's what your brain and body have figured out that you should be for what's going on in your life right now. Isn't that brilliant? Now, you can say, wait a second, I don't want to be 45% body fat. Well, then we have to have a short discussion about how to turn that Titanic a little bit. Yeah. Isn't that brilliant? I've never thought about that. That's why you keep reading. (laughs) I can't remember the article exactly, but you you were talking about game changers. I think it was something like 1.5 times body weight squat. I use the word game changer for way too much stuff. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. When we reach those thresholds, what do they allow us to do that we Oh, yeah, here it is. Anytime you reach the standard, if you're not where you want to be, don't blame me in the weight room. The the standards for elite discus throwing, and the numbers are extremely low, 250 snatch, 300 clean, 400 bench, 450 squat. If I'm coaching you and you're at those numbers, I'm your strength coach, don't blame me. You're strong enough. There's something wrong with your arousal level when you throw. You have a technical fault. You're emotionally weak. You're stupid about recovery. There's something wrong. Don't blame the weight room anymore is what game changers are all about. The problem we have in my field is, honestly, I think I'm the only person who talks about it. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. You're strong enough. Quit blaming the weight room for your problems. It's something else. Uh, I've had people tell me, I'll tell you one thing. If I coached that team, they'd be stronger. Good. But just because they're stronger doesn't mean they're going to be better. Before an American football game, no official comes out and goes, yeah, what's your average bench press? Um, 315. What's yours? Uh, 319. Okay, you guys get an extra two points before we start the game. No. So, and the important things about game changers is once you hit those certain numbers, you'll feel it. Like in high school, once kids, boys clean over 200, you can kind of do a fast deadlift reverse curl. Oh, up to 185, 195. But you have to clean 205. You have to have the right tempo. And once they get that, once they learn how to clean with the right tempo and the right hit of explosion, all of a sudden, the way they play the game of football changes on the field. Cleaning 200 for an adolescent boy is a game changer. To get to that level, which is a it's a good standard. It's not, it's not ridiculous. It's good. Once you get there, all of a sudden, the way you play the game changes. What about for the um, normal everyday guy? Like, what are what are like some game changers for like you know middle aged guy, kids, job, that kind of stuff? Yeah, you should probably be able to bench body weight. I think you know. I would suggest double body weight deadlift because I just don't think it's that much for most people. I would say you should be able to do a pull up or two or three or four. You know, depending on what you you know how you're doing things. I like you to have enough mobility and stability that my favorite thing to do is you have to do a Turkish get up with half a cup of water on your fist like this. I, I love that as a test because it's silly. And yet if you don't have the appropriate mobility, flexibility, and stability that you get, we call it baptized, the, the water sprinkled over you should be able to stand on one foot for 10 seconds. When I take this tape measure and put it around your waist, that tape measure should be half your your height. If it's if you're uh, 72 inches tall and instead of being 36, it's 46, there's your problem right there. And so they're all pretty simple. There's nothing fancy to any of them. Yeah. I'm not consistent on how I say them, any of them, because no matter what I do, people keep adding more and more to it. So, <laughs> but really, if, if you can't stand on one foot for 10 seconds, go, you better go see a medical doctor. You got something wrong with you. And if your waistline is over half your, your height, you have body composition issues. 
And the research is clear. We got to deal with that. Frankly, uh, that tape measure around the waist by itself might be all you, that might be the only test you need. Okay. Now I'm looking, I am looking at the time. So I do have a couple more. How do people get a hold of you and around the waist? <laughs> if they're interested in learning more about what sure. you do and. Sure. I mean, obviously, if you just Google my name, you'll come up with, I mean, it's just freakish how that thing. I write a lot. So I, uh, those those articles are everywhere. So the two best places, I've got a library on, online called danjohn.net. And everything on there will always remain free. I wouldn't say it's dated, but I, I mean, I don't, I mean, we put stuff in there sometimes, but we don't. So I just keep it in there. It's got, if you print off everything, it's about 3,000 pages. So it's 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 thick. And then the, the the one that I keep up with, it is a paid site, but uh, you get a free two-week membership if you like it, danjohnuniversity.com. Very proud of it. The workout generator is in there. And the, the bulk of your audience, that's all they'll ever need. Go to the workout generator, but the forum is great there. I mean, the amount of articles and essays and free PDFs. I mean, if you print off all the PDFs, you probably could drive, you could take a Greyhound bus and go across the country a couple times and still have more to read. Okay. Uh, it's, there's just, there's so many pages, but the workout generator, you, you put in the equipment you have, how many days a week you want to work out, how intense and one or two other questions. You press a button and it spits out your workouts. If you said three days a week, here are your workouts. If you don't understand this exercise, I don't like it. You just scroll up and down on the exercise and pick one you like. Um, in fact, the best feedback I've gotten is about people just changing the exercise to to match where their head is that day because the body is one piece. And I know you're still walking up to the platform in your various Olympic competitions. Do you get a walk-up song for those? Like, do they play a song yeah. in the background like they do for baseball? In Orlando, they asked me if I want if I wanted a walk-up song, and I told them I wanted the London Philharmonic's uh, Ravel's Bolero, the 26-minute version. I thought it was hilarious, but they didn't seem to think it was. Uh, no, I don't. But it uh, honestly, though, I got to tell you, if you were to summarize in music the, what I teach, I would say the Bolero, and, and I mean it. When you listen to the Bolero. That's going to stay all 26 minutes. The foundations, the basics, the fundamentals are all going to be the same. The intensity is what's going to build up. And that's kind of how I see my coaching is Bolero. Today, I worked with a thrower who'd never thrown before, and I taught him things. And my experienced throwers are like, you teach us the same stuff, right? And I'm going to, especially you guys, because you're not getting it. I'm going to keep teaching you this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any more questions? I like this. Yeah. I can give you four more minutes. I was, absolutely. Yeah. Four more minutes? Uh, or more. Uh, whatever you think. Well, I was wrapping up, but we can keep going. Hey, why does oh, no, medium, on, why does medium suck? <laughs> yeah, that's an old article. Yeah. Um, but it makes sense. I'm a big believer in something called power laws. Short, intense bouts of whatever is what life is about. You know, if you've ever been in a traffic accident and all of a sudden you're so alive. If you're skidding out of control on the freeway here in Utah because you hit an ice patch and your brain is panicking, but you can hear your high school driver education uh, teacher say, turn in the direction of the skid. And of course, the direction of the skid is a canyon. You are so alive during that. Most of the time when you drive, you don't even think about it. Your brain doesn't even register that you were in the car. 
to me, that's what life is like. Uh, to me, life is power laws. You know, when I do my Olympic lifts, you know, I only do 21 total lifts when I do, and then I go for my walk. There's that high intensity, that snatch, that clean and jerk. And then I wander, you know, I saunter. Uh, medium is just, uh, Dan Millman quotes Socrates in the one book, medium is the devil's brew. Uh, it is lukewarm tea. Uh, Revelation 3.15, you are lukewarm and I will spit you out. You know, I always joke, I think I joke in the article about your daughter comes home from college and she says, I met the love of my life. And you're like, as a dad, you're like, oh yeah, what's he like? He goes, he's, he's okay. You know, he's good enough student, I guess, average, you know, and, how tall is he? Eh, you know, normal. What's his hair like? Eh, you know, kind of bright. You know. Does that inspire you? Does that, it's like, oh, I can't wait to meet this young man, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Versus, you know, girls would go home from college. Do you have, do you have anyone you meet? Well, his name's Dan John and uh, he's a discus thrower and he discus thrower, that Frisbee thing. Uh, no mom. No, it's. <laughs> yeah. So what is he? Is he just a jock? No, he he's the favorite student of all the f- whole philosophy poli sci wing. Oh, so is he smart? Yeah, he's really smart. Yeah. That's what I hope. I want the Scarecrow of Oz. Of course, L. Frank Baum wrote many more books than just The Wizard of Oz. I think there's a total of fourteen. He quotes: "Ordinary people are leaves in the trees; they just die and they fall off." I love the extraordinary ones. And I I read that, and I always thought that that was just an amazing line. And I'm not ripping on ordinary people. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a great movie with Robert Redford directing. Medium is just, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, if you have a medium workout three days a week and you go for a medium walk, and your diet is have a medium amount of protein and vegetables and a medium amount of water, and you get the average amount of sleep that you should get, yeah, life's going to be okay. But that's not the rocket ship to Saturn. You know, that's, it's, it's good. I like those edges a little bit. That article probably should be rewritten now that I vision it, you know, you know, 15, 16 years later. Yeah. I think that's a good spot to end. Okay. Well, I really appreciate it. If you have, if you want to get a hold of me again, I would love to come on again uh, and go deeper. Uh, I'll just have to remember, I have to use Chrome with this particular. uh, Okay. uh, Which one are you using for your podcast? I don't know. Oh, okay. I, you just no, press I, play or you press record and yeah. Oh, so <laughs> two voices, two voices come out on the other end. <laughs> yeah. My friend, Brian Gwaltney assists me with all that stuff. He, okay. he takes care of all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, we have a very, uh, our business is, uh, is smart. I do the things I'm good at. He does the stuff mm-hmm. he's good at and things work out pretty well. It's, it's one of the better relationships in my life. We, we stay in our lane, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But thanks, Dan. This was this was a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. And tell your wife that I'm weirdly famous. Okay. So I was walking down the street in New York City after the RKC two, and we hear someone say Dan John, and I go yeah. And it was someone from Ireland vacationing in New York who recognized me. I was walking up the stairs in Edinburgh, and I hear Dan John. Someone from Edinburgh, Scotland, recognized me. My daughter was getting a meeting a young man in a Dublin bar. And they decided to become friends on Facebook. And he said to her, how do you know Dan John? And she goes, my dad. And he totally fanboyed. Tell your wife that in a very, very, very narrow ribbon of humanity, I'm famous. Okay. I think that might be the title for the episode. Dan John, weirdly famous. (laughs) 
That would be delightful. And okay. make sure you email me uh, when you put it up, okay? I will, for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll talk soon, I hope, okay? You bet.